We'll be thinking this morning about the statement of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth. And so we're going to read the whole of Genesis 1 and into the first few verses of Genesis 2. Let's read and hear together God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness." And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Amen. Well, we'll be uh, ranging a bit this morning, but I'm sure it would still be helpful to you to have Genesis 1 open as we uh, turn to this great theme of God as creator of heaven and earth. There's a memorable scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew, which represents the genesis of Narnia. Various characters find themselves transported to a place of utter blackness and emptiness. This is an empty world, says one of them. This is nothing. But then a voice begins to sing, a voice coming from all directions at once, deep and rich and so utterly beautiful as to be almost unbearable. As it sings, the sky is suddenly shot through with stars. And then the sun begins to rise, and in the gathering light, a great lion is revealed, pacing back and forth across an unformed world. As they watch, he sings into being grass and hills and flowers and trees, and forests grow and rivers flow, and animals are created. They watch it all amazed. And every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, Narnia, awake, love, think, speak. The great lion gathers all the creatures he has made, and he says, I give to you forever this land of Narnia. I give you the woods, the fruits, the rivers. I give you the stars, and I give you myself. And so Narnia is born by the song of Aslan. It's a delightful picture. And it's a reminder of how absolutely radical and unique is the biblical doctrine of creation. We're prone to forget just how revolutionary this statement of the creed is, and of course the opening sentence of the Bible in which it's very closely related. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple as that. Out of nothing... God creates everything. He doesn't reshape pre-existing material. He doesn't take the Lego box and, and build the Lego into something else. He takes an empty box. He takes nothingness and creates everything by the voice of His Word, by the Word of His voice. We read in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's such a radical idea that most 
cultures and religions, as they have dreamed up various creation myths, they've just, it's never even occurred to them. That most of these myths, they often involve things like cosmic wars and conflicts between the gods. If you were to ask the ancient Babylonians, for example, they would tell you that Marduk manufactured the world from the corpse of his defeated enemy, Tiamat. So if you thought something smelled a bit off, then you know, that, that might be why. But that, that's the kind of thing you get. The Bible says God created out of nothing. And the other reason that's so significant is that it means the universe had a beginning. There was an event, an act of God, which brought the universe into being. And it's, it's fascinating to watch the, the progress of scientific research and to see that in contrast to earlier scientific theories like steady-state theory, which has the universe constantly regenerating itself so that it needs no beginning, to see that now that kind of thing has been completely discredited. And, and something like the Big Bang Theory has been, um, has been devised and developed precisely in order to explain compelling scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning. That's just where the evidence points. There's a great comment by the astronomer and cosmologist Robert Jastrow. Um, I, I, I may have quoted this before, I don't know. He was an agnostic, um, but he describes, he, he's quite honest, he describes the reluctance of the scientific community to embrace this change at first um, because of its philosophical and spiritual implications. Writing in the New York Times many years ago now, he says, uh, now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. This is an exceedingly strange development. We scientists did not expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Now, I want to be clear about something. I want to be clear that in saying that, I do not want to set an anti-scientific tone. That's not, that's not the point at all. Christians have sometimes done that and have sometimes been extremely unwise in how they've spoken about these things. We, what we should certainly question is what you might call scientism, which is the approach that, that believes that science is capable of explaining everything in life and one day will explain every last thing, and that's nonsense. But science itself is a good and helpful pursuit, and it's a noble pursuit for a Christian. So before we go any further in exploring what it means to say that we believe in God as the creator of heaven and earth, I, I want to just take a few minutes. I want to, to, to give you three examples of common traps that, that well-meaning believers sometimes fall into and which we need to be careful to avoid. Number one, Christians sometimes speak negatively about science as if it were some kind of threat to faith. That is a mistake. Scientific discovery hangs on a biblical worldview. It depends on a universe which is coherent and rational and ordered and regular. There have certainly been exceptions, but in general, uh, scientific discovery has been driven forward by Christian commitment rather than held back by it. Science is about exploring and understanding God's world, and that's good. 
A second mistake that Christians can fall into is a kind of, um, well, if you want the technical term, a kind of exegetical overreach, um, or if you want that in English, an attempt to read more out of the Bible than is really in there. Uh, People sometimes bet the farm, if you like. They wager everything on a particular understanding of the scientific process that God used to do A, B, or C. Um, Usually, they're trying to be faithful to the Bible. It's well-intentioned. But however we read the Bible in its various different parts and genres, we need to not read it like a physics textbook because it's not. That's just not what there is. No part of the Bible that is a physics textbook. That's not to say that the Bible says things which are wrong. It doesn't ever. But it is to say that sometimes the Bible just isn't asking the questions that we are asking. And Christians who have wagered everything on debatable interpretations of Scripture have allowed secularists to to lump everything together. I wonder if this rings a bell, if you've heard this recently. Allows secularists to, to lump everything together and dismiss what they like to refer to as creationism. You heard that term used, creationism. It's a completely meaningless term. It doesn't mean anything at all. It's a deliberately vague way of of lumping into one every wacky idea that everybody has ever put forward about how the earth was created, the age of the earth, all all of those kind of controversial things um, and things about which people have have hugely varying views. Uh, You lump them all together, you call them creationism, and then you use that label to ridicule any notion of a creator. If anyone ever asks you if you're a creationist, Don't let them away with it. Define your term. That's your answer. What do you mean by creationist? A third misstep that people sometimes make, and this is an important one historically and and today, is, is to almost gloat over the fact that there are things that science still can't explain. Now, that's, that's, that's a little bit foolish. It's fair to say that there are things which science will never explain because they lie out with the purview of science. It's actually very important to recognize that. But far too many Christians have fallen prey to something which has become known as the God of the gaps. Do you know that? God is used as a convenient explanation for whatever we can't yet understand. We know how this happened, and we know how that happened, but we don't know how the other happened, so that was God. That's a very, very foolish uh, approach to understanding the world. It's a problem for two reasons. Uh, In the first place, it's a problem because, of course, as science progresses, the gaps in our knowledge narrow, and slowly but surely, God is squeezed out. You know who who was one of the worst perpetrators of this mistake in modern history? A certain man called Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, if you read through his writings over the years, he spent 30 years of his life swinging wildly between thinking that there must be a God, and then, no, I don't think there is a God, and it was all based on how well he understood that physics had explained the origin of the universe. If you go back 30 years, Stephen Hawking would say, we have no idea how the universe began. It's hard to imagine how it could have have begun, so, so it must have been God. And if you go back 10 years, a book called The Grand Design, um, then, then Stephen Hawking says, ah, we now have this wonderful thing called multiverse theory. Um, it's, it's vanishingly unlikely that, that, that the conditions for life would ever occur by chance, but if you've got a billion universes or, or, or an infinite number of universes, then it's going to happen eventually. So that's okay. We don't need God anymore. It just happened by chance. And then in the final paper he published before his death in 2018, last year, 
Stephen Hawking said, actually, I've done some more research into this, and I've come to the conclusion that if, even if there were a number of different universes, the, the, the physical conditions are such that they're all going to look quite like each other. And so once again, the fine-tuning of our universe, which makes life possible, becomes vanishingly unlikely. Now, do you see the problem? God exists. No, he doesn't exist. Yes, he does exist. All dependent on the state of our scientific knowledge because you're just treating him as a god of the gaps. And it's also, at, at the deepest level of all, it's simply a category mistake. It's to confuse the question of how something happened with the question of who made it happen. The wrong step is, is, is to think that if you could describe the origin of the world in the language of physics, then you would have explained the origin of the world. That's simply not true. That's like saying that if you can analyze the chemical composition of an artistic masterpiece and, and consider the precise brush strokes which went into its formation, there is no longer a need for a painter. No painter ever existed. And if, if I can add one final thing to this disproportionately long introduction, um, I want to make clear from the beginning that there's a whole category of questions that we're not going to we're not going to do today. Okay, and we really would be here all day. Um, the creed is not concerned with how the universe was formed, but with who formed it. It is not concerned with when the universe was formed, but with why. And so while we're inevitably touching on this interface between science and faith, which is nothing to be nervous of in the slightest, there are lots of questions that we won't be going into today. To get bogged down this morning in the Big Bang and evolution and all the rest of it would distract us uh, and take us away from the focus of the Bible and of the creed. Maybe another day, uh, but not today. So here's what we're going to do for the rest of our time, and we'll have to move through it quite quickly. We're going to explore this statement of faith, I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, um, and we're going to um, see how it helps us to answer three phenomenally important questions, some of the most important questions you will ever ask. We begin with a, with a question of theology. Who is God? If God is the creator of heaven and earth, what does that say about him? Well, it says two things. It says he is distinct from creation, and it says he is revealed in creation. In, in a biblical worldview, there is the sharpest possible line drawn between God and everything else that exists. There, there are two categories of thing in existence. Um, there, there is the category of the uncreated, and God is the sole occupant of that category. There's nothing else in that category. God. And then there is the category of the created, and everything else is in that category. God, everything else. It's very important to recognize the biblical teaching that God stands apart from His creation and is distinct from it. So much of the Bible's wisdom literature, for example, as it's telling us how to live well in God's world, keeps coming back to that point. Here's how to live well in the world. Understand that God is God and that you are not Stop trying to be Him. Stop trying to do things and know things that only He can do and know. It helps us to understand why, yes, there are going to be things about God which we will never comprehend because He's God, and we are not. When we contemplate Him, when we encounter Him, 
we should expect to encounter mystery. Not nonsense, but mystery. And even more than that, in a sense, our understanding of the gospel hinges on all of this. And as Christians, you know, we love to consider the doctrines of salvation. But in a sense, the doctrines of salvation are built on the doctrine of creation. Only if there is a creator God to whom all creatures owe their loyalty and obedience does the concept of sin make any sense. Why should we obey God? Because He made us. He's the creator. He's king of all. Only if there is a creator God in whose image we were made and for whom we were made can you see that our, to be alienated from God is a horrific problem. Only if there is a creator God who is the source of all life and joy and glory and whom we need more than we need the air we breathe does the idea of salvation make any sense and the, and the value of the gospel shine out. So God is distinct from His creation. That's important. But He is also revealed in His creation. He makes Himself known in what He has made. Calvin described uh, uh, creation as the theater of God's glory. There's a, there's a theologian's term for you. If you prefer a poet, Jared Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Or in biblical terms from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It, in a sense, when we come to Genesis 1 that we read earlier, it, invites us, it almost invites us to start where we are and work back because right? it knows that's how we're reading the text. We, we've all experienced the world. Um, and, and in the age in which we live, we have enormous privileges. We can sit and, and, and watch open-mouthed, as David Attenborough tells us, all kinds of stunning things about this world that we inhabit. After, uh, after millennia in which the vast majority of people who ever lived never moved more than 20 miles from their home, from, from the place where they were born, we now have this extraordinary thing called international travel. And many of us in this room have, have traveled the globe and seen just wonders of creation. And of course, all of us have looked up at the night sky. And, and I just need to mention in our culture, I need to mention the Grand Canyon or the Himalayas and, and pictures come into your mind. And they're pictures of magnificence and grandeur that lift your heart. Genesis 1 does this. Genesis 1 takes us by the hand and says... Let me introduce you to the one who did all of that. Seriously, you think that's magnificent? Wait until you see the one who formed it out of nothing by the word of his mouth. And so we start to see more of God, and then we start to see the world in a different light, in the light of God. It's like learning to appreciate great art, or, or at least... To be honest, I have to say it's how I imagine it would be to learn to appreciate great art. Suddenly a whole new world opens to your vision. We're all looking at the same painting, but we're not all seeing the same thing, are we? You stand astonished at the sublime skill on display. And consider this too. We marvel at the creativity of man, and rightly so. But in the end, as I was saying to the children, all that we ever do, really, is take what already exists and reshape it or reimagine it. Years and years ago, Kay was doing a um, 
think, a Sunday school class, and she asked her, she gave the kids a, a paper and pens and said, I'd like you to design a new fruit. So off you go. M make up a new fruit, something that doesn't exist. And it's amazing. So, so what you end up with is blue bananas. And, and you know, just, just kind of variations on, on existing things. It's actually very, very difficult to come up with something just completely new. To say that God created the world out of nothing is to say that he had total freedom in his creation and nothing to work from. Every single thing that he formed was his own original design. He decided how it would be out of the, the awesome genius of his mind. So this statement, I believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, helps us to answer theological questions and to appreciate something of the mind-blowing glory of the God who formed the universe by the word of his command. Secondly, it helps us to answer a question of cosmology. What is the world? If you're a scientist, I'm using cosmology in a kind of general, non-technical sense. Uh, what is the world? If God is creator, what does that say about the world? And we're going to run through four things. Number one, and this is what we've already seen, really, the world is distinct from God. So we need to understand that. The world is distinct from God, the creator-creature distinction. The world is not God, contrary to some religions and philosophies. God is not in the world, contained in it, contrary to some other religions and philosophies. God is not your consciousness. God is not a universal principle. God is not any other form of vague mysticism. The world is separate from God. Number two, the world is designed by God. And so what we can say, without resorting to a God of the gaps, is that the Christian understanding of the world denies the idea that the universe, the world, and we exist as a result of chance events. Whatever the physical processes involved in the formation of the universe, and in the end, that doesn't matter too much, actually, there is a mind behind it all. There is intelligence. There is design. There is a God of grace and of glory. And, and, and it, is, it is an issue in the sense that it's remarkable. Minds which don't want to accept the reality of God have gone to enormous lengths to explain how such an exquisitely crafted universe could come about by chance. Everyone recognizes, all, all scientists recognize that the odds against the kind of multi-layered fine-tuning of physical constants required to sustain life on this planet are astronomically high. It is vanishingly unlikely that it could ever have come about by chance. And for now, the most common response to that problem among scientists who don't want to, to accept creation is what I mentioned earlier. It's multiverse theory. You just come up with a theory that, that there are, in fact, countless millions of universes which we cannot see. Um, so that it's more understandable that eventually in one of them, th these conditions just so happen to be met and life emerges. Now, I object to that. I object to it not because it's bad theology. I object to it because it's bad science. There is literally zero 
scientific evidence of the existence of one universe apart from ours. Never mind countless billions of them. It's an amazing thing. We can't believe in God. That's just not credible. But we invite you, as someone has described it, we invite you to join the church that believes in the existence of invisible objects 50 billion galaxies wide. And we do it in the name of science. Again, I'm not mocking science. I'm mocking unscientific gibberish. The world displays design, and the most rational conclusion is that this design has a designer. I read last week uh, something by Professor John Lennox. He's written extensively about the relationship between science and faith. Um, He says this, I once asked the Oxford chemist, Professor Peter Atkins, what created the universe. His answer was mathematics. I laughed, and he was quite cross. Why are you laughing, he said. Well, I replied, that's the silliest thing I've heard for a long time. Did one plus one equals two ever put two pounds in your pocket? See his point? Maths doesn't do anything. So we confess that the world around us is designed by God. Number three, and this is crucial, the world is dependent on God. God is not dependent on anyone or anything, but the world and everything in it are dependent on God. The stars and planets are where they are because God holds them there. The laws of physics are what they are because God legislated them. The sun does what it does because God sends it on its way each day. The sparrow sings because God tells it to. The mountain speaks of his grandeur because God commands it. My heart beats, my lungs breathe because God makes them do so at every ongoing moment. Everything is from him and everything is dependent on him. Every good and perfect gift is continually coming down from above, from the Father of lights, and we will never understand the world in which we live or live in it properly until we see this. The world is distinct from God. The world is designed by God. The world is dependent on God. Number four, the world has departed from God. It's important to note the recurring theme that that we heard earlier from Genesis 1. God created this, and He saw that it was good, and He created that, and He saw that it was good, and He finished His work, and He saw that it was very good. Some philosophies, even some, some kind of twisted versions of Christianity, have acted as if matter doesn't matter, or, or is even evil, as if the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. We're, we're kind of trapped in these bodies, and, and the great thing is that one day we'll, our souls will be released from our bodies and, and find freedom. That, that's not a biblical worldview at all. The world is a good world. Our our physical embodiment is a good thing. And yet there is so much in this world today that is not good. So much in us that is not good. And that tells us that it's a world that has departed from its creator and turned against his purposes. The place that we inhabit is a glorious world polluted by a trail of slime left behind by a serpent. Last week, 
Um, we had Gethin Jones with us, a colleague in the IPC, um, and he had a few days holiday, so we went with him on Monday. Monday passed, um, I was standing with him in the ruins of St. Andrew's Cathedral. I was reminded of just what a wonderful illustration that is of both the human condition and the world in which we live. You stand there sometime and, and look at what's there. This, this, is a, this is a ruin. This is no good for anything. Nobody's holding services in St. Andrew's Cathedral. There's no roof. Half the walls are gone. It's, it's not what it should be. It's not what it was designed to be. But there's enough there now to appreciate the, the, the sheer magnificence of what was there once. Look at that. There's a spiral stair that goes up into nowhere. There's flying buttresses that don't fly because they just stop. There's, there's, there's the base of pillars that once would have soared way up to a vaulted ceiling that isn't there anymore. But there's enough there that you can stand there and say, this was astonishing. That's our world. That's us. The world is the good creation of God, now fallen from the perfection of its original design. But before we close, there's one more question we have to consider in which this statement of faith helps us to consider. It's a question of identity. Who am I? The created world tells us things about who God is, about what the world itself is. Who am I? The biblical contention is that you will never understand who you are until you know who God is, including the fact that He is your creator and you are His creature. If that's true, uh, if it's true that God is creator of heaven and earth, what does it say about you? Because after all, if God created all things, you're one of the all things that God created. And that brings all of this home to a new personal level. You were made by Him. You were made for Him. You owe your existence to Him. You owe your every breath to Him. And you cannot live your life ignoring Him. Here are four implications for you of the fact that God created all things. Number one, if God is creator, worship Him. He is magnificent. He is the living God, glorious and beautiful and desirable above all things. God is creator, worship Him, He's magnificent. Number two, if God is creator, obey Him, He's your king. J.I. Packer insists, if you are not your own maker, that means you are not your own master. That entails an absolutely radical, mind-blowing, life-changing alteration of course, because there are mantras in our society by which we have come to live our lives. And if God is creator of heaven and earth, they're not true. It's my life. No, it's not. It's my choice. What gave you that idea? It's my body. It most certainly is not. If you are God's, then you are not yours. That's the the, the magnificent opening to the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563, question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? How would you answer that? Here's how the Catechism answers it. Answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own. This is my comfort. I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
God is your creator, you are not your own. Obey him. Number three, if God is creator, trust him. He really does got the whole world in his hands. He controls all things. He can be trusted at all times. You can put everything in his hands. He will never let you down. Number four, if God is creator, follow him. Find your identity and your joy in him. Maybe you can help me after the service. Maybe you, maybe you can think of a way in which it is possible to take what you might call the cosmic accident view of human life and to still have any coherent basis for valuing people. Because I can't find one. If we're, if we're an accident, why are we valuable? I, I don't believe you can justify that with, with philosophical consistency and coherence. Um, to return to Peter Atkins, the, that's Peter Atkins that John Lennox spoke to that day, maths created the universe. Um, what, what, that kind of philosophy, where does that end up? This is what Peter Atkins said. He described mankind as just a bit of slime on a planet. That's you and me, just a bit of slime on a planet. If humanity is ultimately what, once, what someone once described as a grown-up germ, why do any of us matter? What, what value could there be to you? Why would we love anyone or value anything? Yet this is genuinely the view of many. The, the atheist Bertrand Russell said, you are the result of an accidental collocation of atoms. That's you. An accidental collocation of atoms. Francis Crick, one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA, said this. You, he puts you in inverted commas as if you don't really exist. You, your joys and sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. If we're just slime and germs and nerve cells, then who on earth are we? What on earth are we? And why does everything in us cry out against such a dismal view of our existence? That's where that view of the world takes you. Where does the Bible take you? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you get that from the reading? He made the plants after their own kind. He made these animals after their own kind. He made the birds after their own kind. He made the fish after their own kind. He made man in his image. We, we were created to be God-like. That's our design. 
We were created to to know God. You were created for God. And, And at the heart of you, and at the heart of the only true and satisfying identity you can ever know for yourself, is the need for God. And since you are not only a part of this world that was designed by God, but also a part of the world that has departed from God, so that that image of God in you is is spoiled and marred by sin. What that means is that you need a Savior to restore to you all that was meant to be yours. You need to encounter the one who lived for you and died for you, that your sins might be forgiven. You need to encounter Jesus Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God, and the one into whose image all of God's people are slowly but surely being conformed. And as if the prospect of personal salvation were not amazing enough, the the Bible holds out more. When Christ returns at the end of time, we will be raised in our bodies. These created bodies will be renewed and perfected forever. And if that's not amazing enough, the Bible holds out more still, because if we're going to have renewed and perfected bodies for the whole of eternity, we're going to need a renewed and perfected home for the whole of eternity. Remember, the creation is good. The creation is not just a kind of convenient temporary place for us to be while we're in these bodies, until we go to heaven. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? The creation itself is waiting with eager longing for the day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Not not destroyed, set free. Peter says, 2 Peter 3, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, a world unspoiled by sin, unspoilable by sin. And then when you come, of course, when you come to the end of the Bible, when God pulls the curtain back and gives us sight of what will be one day, It all comes together there in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new place for God's people. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, God's people themselves, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And what happens? God is with his people and his people are with him and I will be their God. And I will dwell with them in a new creation forever. When we say that we believe in God, creator of heaven and earth, we say a great deal about God and about the world and about who we are too. Let's pray. Father, we strain with mind and imagination to conceive who you are, this this creator God who speaks worlds into being. We cannot begin to understand your power, your wisdom, your creative genius, all that you are, the glory and beauty and perfection and eternal nature of this God, the one uncreated 
being, the uncreated creator of all else that is. And so we worship you, we bow before you. We ask that by your grace, we would know what we have been speaking of today, that we would, as we come to you as our creator, that we would indeed worship you, that we would obey you, that we would trust you, that we would follow you and find you in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Lead us to that place by your Spirit, and as we come to you, we pray that you would continue to work in us, that you might renew us after his likeness more and more, and prepare us more and more for the new heavens and the new earth that lie before us, that lie before your people. We give thanks for these great truths. Help us to live in the light of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.